So, Professor Furfaro, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I'd like to start talking with you about uh, your experience in the OSIRIS-REx mission, what you did uh, in that mission, and uh, what was the main results, the main outcome? That yes, okay. Thank you for the uh, this talk. Actually, it's a pleasure you know, to discuss uh, with you, especially as part of the Stardust Network, which is an exciting uh, endeavor. So, yes, um, so uh, I worked on OSIRIS-REx uh, as a faculty, actually, at the University of Arizona, um, uh, in the mission for about six years, you know, I was involved in the concept study, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, just to remind everybody, Osiris Rex is uh, is uh, the third New Frontier missions, and the New Frontier program is a NASA program that they found what they call the medium class spacecraft explorer, uh, order of a billion dollar. Medium classes. The reference to the kind of spacecraft. The kind of spacecraft, also kind of missions overall, right? For example, the smaller class uh, is Discovery, program is about $500 million. And there are something else smaller, like Simplex, where it's about $50 million, which involves CubeSats at lower scale, like $15 million, $15 million and so on. Anyway, there is all a set of programs for the exploration of the solar system and NASA that are competed. They're usually PI-led missions. What he means, he means that there is a PI uh, who's assembling a team. Usually you need a spacecraft uh, provider, you need a NASA center to manage, you need instrument providers, you need a science team. A PI usually arranges and leads the whole team. That's what we did at the end of the University of Arizona. Um, when I got involved, we had passed, uh, we were select, uh, selected for uh, uh, phase one, uh, phase A, basically step one, we passed. What is it was 2010, right? Um, and we went through a 10 months uh, concept study, which is equivalent basically to a phase A uh, concept study. And we were competing at the time uh, with the other two missions uh, that were, um, were coming from Jet Propulsion Laboratory. One was a Venus mission, Venus lander, and the other one was a, 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 a South Pole uh, moon sample return. Okay, and then eventually uh, I got involved in this concept study. We went through 10 months of refining our concepts, our cost models, and we, uh, we basically brought uh, this concept report. We went through a site visits where it's a full day where the NASA review team comes down and uh, you have to present pretty much your finding and what's your approach to it. Eventually in 2011, I think it was June 2011, uh, uh, it was selected, so we got the announcement that out of the three mission, um, Osiris Rex was uh, was selected to move forward as a, uh, to move forward, you know, as a, uh, in the new frontier program. And then eventually we had the uh, uh, bridge phase, and formally in November 2011 we started phase B. Okay, so um, so. So we got selected in 2011, and we eventually launched the spacecraft on September 8, 2016. So we had a typical five years development phase. During the space, I had different roles, right, uh, depending on the needs. The major one that I got was I was the system lead, system engineering lead for the science and processing operations center. For the mission, basically, I was responsible to developing 
all the architecture requirements for the data uh, processing uh, and uh, product basically the generation as well as the science uh, the science commands associated to the um, to the instrument commands planning associated to the mission uh, I also uh, served as a ground system engineering so a little bit hyper role basically connect all the ground infrastructure which was comprising three elements basically one is what we call the SPOC the science and processing operation uh, center and it was the flight dynamic systems and there was the uh, mission support area which is the um, the operation the commanding of the of the old spacecraft for operation at Lockheed Martin in Colorado as part of the ground system so it was an exciting experience, you know, it was a lot of, it was one of those complex uh, complex missions that was extremely challenging to fly and eventually now still at the, at the at Bennu, the asteroids. Uh, the team is going to attempt uh, grabbing the samples sometimes this summer. It's going to be challenging um, because the environment is extremely uncertain because from the United States perspective, is the first time they will fly around and operate in what we call close, execute basically close proximity operation around uh, a small object like Bennu, diameter 500 meters. And we are targeting now an area of about, uh, uh, for sampling, of about 10 meters diameter, which is uh, honestly much smaller than what we originally had designed the spacecraft. Right? The original. Uh, and why did, did they change? Did you change? requirements well uh, formally formally before launch was not changed it was still the spacecraft design to that ah. to, uh, to design to target an area uh, of, uh, of uh, 50 meter diameters right and basically this area there was the capability of the uh, error let's say ellipse for what we call the touch and go maneuver so remember we don't land on the uh, the asteroids what we do we touch grab the samples and go away and the touching phase is only five seconds okay estimated so it's a very peculiar um, operation and challenging because it's an, in a very uncertain and uh, and a very low gravity uh, environment and uh, and the original idea was that uh, you know the morphology of the and the geology of the uh, of the surface, uh, the band of surface would be completely different than what we eventually expected. But you know that's part of the also excitement of space mission. You know it's an exploratory mission, so you are not sure what you're going to find. You do your best to design the uh, the, the mission to the most up-to-date information that, we, that, you, that you have. So we expected the, an environment, a geological environment, much closer to um, the one on Itokawa, found by. Uh, Ayabusa, one mission in which there were large areas of small, fine regolates. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and why is that and not, uh, for example? It's not the case, well, part of the problem was associated to the fact that um, we did an, ind an indirect estimates of uh, the thermal inertia uh, associated to the asteroids by measuring through the Spitzer telescopes a few years back when, you know, uh, the asteroids came closer you know, mm -hmm. to Earth, and the thermal inertia seemed to indicate that uh, there would have been a smoother area okay. associated to that. Unfortunately, as I said, you know, many of these measurements might be ambiguous. It's really hard to uh, this unambiguously 
reach a conclusion. Um, also, How does it work, the measuring of uh, well, measure? basically, uh, you measure the thermal flux, mm -hmm. right, um, of the object, and through the thermal flux, what you do, you try to back out the thermal inertia through a thermal model. Okay, so it's model based, but then, then you have to do something else to do to go from thermal inertia to grain size. And that's where things get extremely hard, you know, and things the model. You're solving an inverse problem, right? Mm -hmm. From measurements, you go to physical properties through a model-based approach. This uh, inverse problem are nominally uh, no, are known to be ill-conditioned, right? Mm -hmm. So it's extremely hard to find, you know, a reliable, uh, you know, solution. So and also because the class of objects uh, of Itokawa and Rio and um, and uh, Ben were similar, so we expected also from the information that. The, the we had from the ship model, which was um, um, it was radar based derived, you know, mm -hmm. with the seven meter resolution, the regional one, seemed to indicate also concentration of uh, regolith at the equator. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is that uh, you know we did the best, you know, the scientists did the best, and uh, the surface you know seemed to be much much rockier, rougher. Uh, important. So you need to shrink to to, to get. Yeah. You need to shrink. You basically, we were not able to find a 50 meter area smooth enough that uh, that is scientifically interest. But then the science became at this point in a lower priority with respect to the safety of the spacecraft. For the safety of the spacecraft, you need, for example, to find an area relatively uh, boulder free. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to find an area where the slope is less than uh, 14 degree, which is the Basic tipping point that the spacecraft during the touch and go is able to tolerate, mm -hmm. um, and then also you have to have some some reflectivity associated during the na during navigation for lidar, mm -hmm. um, and and so there were all these constraints, and it turns out that anyway there were such limited areas. Not only that, actually, it's safeable and it should be safe, safe, but also sampleable. To be sampleable also means that you have to have fine regolites with the grain size or pebbles not larger than two centimeters in diameter. So how does it work? You have to push? Yeah, basically it's a, it's, a, it's an arm that is extended, it's about two meters, and uh, and at the end there is this uh, tagsam, it's a sample acquisition mechanism, looks like a filter, uh, air filter of a car, mm -hmm. right? But uh, there are basically three uh, nitrogen bottles associated to that, and uh, when uh, the surface is touched, right, it's sensed through an accelerometer. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, the accelerometer triggers the bottle of nitrogen. This gas, it's called gas, is uh, shoot through the uh, mechanism into the surface because of the low gravity. The idea is that to mobilize the surface, eventually there is an opening that collects all this regolith with the diameter less than two um, uh, two centimeters, then close it, right? Mm -hmm. And it can uh, it can acquire as much as two kilos mm -hmm. of uh, of material. Okay. And how fast is the spacecraft going down? So uh, the the requirements this was was designed was no more than ten centimeters per second vertical velocity and no more than two centimeters per second lateral velocity. So those are the constraints, and you know, usually you are in a free fall from about 50 meters uh, mm -hmm. altitude. Okay, so, so you're you going to stop control. I mean, yes, it's stop itself because 
yeah, it's, it's going to be autonomous, even the, the navigation. Well, um, so the nominal plan, which was what we when we designed the whole uh, touch and go maneuver, uh, it was supposed originally to be uh, with uh, pretty much open loop, which means ground in the loop. Um, and what it means, it means that uh, the sequence of of, uh, of commands, right, or barns that are executed during the mission, are really uh, pre-planned from the ground, uploaded to the spacecraft, and then executed according to a certain time, right, clock. Um, uh, and it consisted basically, so the spacecraft would be in a safe home, um, of uh, which is a polar, you know, terminator orbits. Um, about one kilometer altitude, uh, not altitude, one kilometer radius orbit, mm -hmm. so about 700, uh, you know, uh, meter, 750 meter altitude. You execute an initial burn, you coast for quite a while. Eventually, when you are 125 meters, you know, to go, you execute another burn. Mm -hmm. uh, once you are about 50 meters, you then do the last and final burns that basically. So, uh, match the angular velocity of the asteroid, and you go as ver vertical uh, in a coasting phase. Mm -hmm. Once you touch the surface, as soon as you touch, there's another. Bird. Yes, uh, it's after five seconds, right? Usually estimated, then there is another burn that will bring you far away from the from the uh, asteroid, uh, talking about a few kilometers, where you can do safely some measurements. Of the uh, measurements of the of the sample, you know, to estimate if you got something. You got something, right? It turns out that the measure, the the way we measure those things is by uh, basically doing this loop maneuver around one axis, right, before and after the sampling. Basically, what you're measuring is the uh, difference in moment of inertia, and uh, there is a sensitivity of about 60 grams, 50, 60 grams. So we we expect to get as, as little as 60 grams, as much as uh, two kilograms, two, two kilograms. So, so, and you have three attempts, right? If, this, mm -hmm. if, if after the first touch and go, you do the measurement, you see that you're below 60 grams, because that means you're in uncertainty measurements, then you have mm -hmm. to go back. Of course, even there, it's going to be <laughs> probably depending how close you are to the 60, you know, because then you have you have a trade-off of risk versus reward because at the end of the day, you know, executing the maneuvers over and over increases the overall risk, right? So the nominal approach is completely, it's completely ground on the loop, right? Uh, eventually, um, we, we put some level of closed loop or feedback into the system by measuring using a LiDAR um, to measure the limb, uh, the crossing, which give information about the range to go. And another measurement of an altitude at a certain point that will eventually provide some uh, onboard correction of the timing of the burning and the length of the burning. So you can, based on that information, the range to go in one altitude, you can correct the next two burns. But even with that, you know, uh, it's been, uh, you know, uh, when we did the initial, the initial Monte Carlo analysis, you know, we're meeting the 50 meter requirements, right? And sometimes we will go to 20 meters requirements uh, on the equator, okay? However, now the uh, selected area, by the way, um, the process was to down select after the, uh, after the orbital B phase, down select four sites, right? 
Eventually, one uh, was recently down selected. It was a couple of months ago called Nightingale. Nightingale. That's the name of. There were fancy names for for the team assembled for all the four sides. Eventually, Nightingale was was uh, uh, was selected, and now it's going to be the challenge to hit this this ten meters. I know that eventually there will be some additional level of autonomy in terms of navigation um, with some level of uh, feature tracking, you know, using the images. Um, but originally there was supposed to be a backup option, but now I think it's going to be more and more increased. So we'll see. We're crossing fingers because it's going to be really challenging. The surface was definitely... We had the hint of that actually after we saw the first images of uh, Ryuku from Ayabusa mm -hmm. 2. You know, they didn't expect anything like this as well. How was the timing in terms of, uh, so w while you were working in 2010? They arrived, a little bit, they, they arrived a little bit earlier. Okay. And actually, as a matter of fact, they already collected the sample in, uh, in November 2019, they departed for Earth. So their mission was, that's Ayabusa 2. So they arrived before us, a few months before us, and they, are depart they already departed, so it's been about a year. Yeah, and I have to say that the concept mission between the two, they, they, they are much different, they have much more autonomy. And also, for example, um, um, we, they are exploring by executing hovering, right, at, at a certain altitude and then move around. We don't do any hovering, we do pot orbiting, then we do hyperbolic arcs back and forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's kind of the... It's conceptually different, the two missions, two, philo two philosophies. And, uh, and what happens is actually the OSIRIS-REx origin, when we propose it, we um, convinced NASA to, to fund us because uh, we were, we did quite a bit of work to address the pitfalls of Ayabusa 1, mm. uh, which was, you know, lesson learned. One of the big deal from us was lesson learned from Ayabusa 1, trying to make the, the, uh, the, the, our mission successful. Mm -hmm. And was uh, Rosetta? Uh, well, there's nothing to learn from there. Or? I'm for, well, there's always <laughs> something to learn. The problem with Rosetta, Rosetta was a much longer scale mission, mm -hmm. and I think it was launched what 2006, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. right? At the time, Osiris X was just a concept, not even proposed. It was at the time I think it was proposed for was just barely proposed for discovery for the discovery program, but at the time it was not even called OSIRIS-REx, it was called only OSIRIS because it was a smaller spacecraft mm -hmm. with a much smaller um, uh, science uh, scope, you know, and, and simply because it was a $500 million mission originally when proposed for a discovery program, but when proposed eventually, when eventually didn't get the discovery and we went to a scale up to uh, an a mission, a new frontier mission that you're talking about extending, having much more many more uh, instruments and, uh, you know, extending what you can do in terms of science objectives. Yeah, so. And now are you still working on uh, near-Earth objects, asteroids? Yes, actually, um, I I was on the mission on OSIRIS-REx until launch, you know, so I, I went through all development phase and I had students now also uh, working until pretty much last year um, on the OSIRIS-REx um, mission. My involvement, however, uh, after pretty much October 2016 uh, was over, I moved to do a few other things. Uh, in terms of missions, um, I'm actually now leading uh, uh, 
part of the investigation team for the newly approved NASA uh, NEO surveyor mission, okay? Formerly known as NEOCAM, right? Um, now uh, it's been approved as part of the what we call the planetary defense program. So it's not a science mission anymore. It's a survey mission. It's part of the planetary defense program. It's interesting because those missions, while the science mission like Discovery and New Frontiers and so on are um, PI-led mission, the planetary defense missions are not PI-led, but we have, at the University of Arizona is the lead in the sense that we have the surveyor director, that's what the name is called, okay? okay? It's equivalent to a PI, mm -hmm. principal investigator is called surveyor, uh, survey director. And instead of the science team, you have the investigation team. Okay. Uh, so what is this mission? First of all, so we understand also the structure. This mission is, is an exciting mission. We are launching by 2024 a spacecraft to uh, the L1 Lagrange point between Earth and the Sun. And we look uh, basically with the 20, well, basically, you know, we look uh, orthogonal to the direction of the conjunction Earth-Sun, mm -hmm. right? Because we don't want to point at the Sun with an aperture of 120 degrees on each side. And we, uh, as a requirement, we want to map greater than 90% of all Earth, uh, near-Earth objects uh, with diameter greater than 140 meters. Okay? So basically, uh, you know, we're going to just identify and characterize all the, all the objects, you know, mm -hmm. or greater than 90% of the objects that can be dangerous for Earth. You know? how, how do you know when you reach 90% of the total? Well, uh, we know because there are part of the investigation team. Um, there is the uh, the asteroid population models, right? Mm -hmm. So we have information about what we expect through this model, how many asteroids we, we are expecting to see. Mm -hmm. And there is, of course, some uncertainty there, but that's the way that you do it. Mm -hmm. So we have a population model that we know uh, the distribution of all the parameters um, based on information, the best information we can get. Right. And actually, we use it to do simulations of the mission to know that, you know, what are the limits of detection and things like that. It's very exciting. What I'm doing there, I'm leading what we call, as part of the investigation team, what we call uh, follow-up, uh, uh, target follow-up working group. Basically, we are in charge of developing an artificial intelligence system uh, that can process the data as acquired from the mission and rank all the asteroids and also uh, figure out autonomously which one are the most important to follow up either from the uh, new surveillance spacecraft or from ground mm -hmm. observation systems. And it's going to do important in terms of uh, how big they are, how risky? Yes, actually we're designing the tools. Uh, actually the tool is, uh, is actually as a, a, an intelligent system, it's a cognitive system, it's based on Bayesian and FADS, the combination of Bayesian and FADS inference, okay? So it reasons over the data and take conclusions. Um, and of course, we have some input parameters that are derived from the observation that, for example, tells you some information about the diameters, about the, the moid or the minimum intersect uh, mm -hmm. uh, orbit and uh, of the predicted orbit. Uh, it put also uh, information about probability of impacts, right? information about time of impacts based on the best information that you have at the time. The reason why we, you needed to do it autonomously is because 
especially at the beginning of the survey, we are expecting that per day a discovery rate of a thousand or even a thousand or two, even ten thousand per day. There's no way that any, any the investigation team will look every day in details at this one and figure out if it is dangerous or not, or what's the rank of this. So the system will reason on that, mm -hmm. and then uh, eventually will task more observations, um, so that we can better characterize and you know track. The, the objects, because of course, what's going to happen is that once you detect and you observe, uh, uh, what you do, you you define those ta uh, what we call in jargon tracklets, right? Mm -hmm. Which are partial arcs in uh, of the of the of the system that then can be correlated to uh, a definition of the orbits. But there's a lot of uncertainty because of the propagation models, or because there are also uncertainties in terms of um, understanding exactly what is the orbit unless you continuously observe for, for a while and um, uh, so anyway so it's a, it's a very exciting exciting thing to do um, and this tool um, is basically gonna code uh, expertise from different planetary scientists into a system that will try to reason as that we have a record I published papers that um, promoted this idea of designing cognitive systems that can reason in a certain environment for space explorations, right? The idea was to have uh, to basically mimic the way planetary science thinks about mm -hmm. the exploration in the general okay. terms, but this is now adapted to the problem of is it important? And uh, this tool is extremely important also because the um, the spacecraft has a survey pattern, right? That is pretty much established, more or less. And of course, anytime you want to observe some object from the spacecraft, you have to somehow go from a survey mode into a tracking, targeting mm -hmm. modes. And that disrupts the pattern of the survey, which is a resource, mm -hmm. of course. And so it's, it's kind of one of those things that you, you want to try to minimize the impact on the overall survey because it might affect the discovery rate and so on and rely when possible from ground, but th this is going to be all reasoned on depending on the type of objects, depending on the status and availability of the ground assets that's going to observe. So autonomously from the ground, uh, uh, this uh, intelligent system is going to tell the spacecraft when to switch, yeah. switch from it, one mode to another. It will provide the information about, you know, about uh, what to do. Uh, of course, this is going to be provided to the operators, it's going to be, you know, um, Quick turnaround. That's important because to process all these ten thousand objects, you know. Okay. So. And do you see applications of this also for space debris? Yes, actually. As a matter of fact, not just for also uh, just with space debris, but we are also talking. University of Arizona is also lead in ground-based discovery of asteroid discovery. Uh, there is a survey called Catalina uh, Catalina Sky Survey, which is basically. Uh, Part of the Lunar and Planetary Lab, and I think uh, since 1995 we discovered uh, of all possible sites 50% of the known um, the known objects. And very interesting these tools also on their own because you know they want to also minimize the or increase the autonomy, you know, mm -hmm. the discovery and the discovery rates and this kind of things. Um, and of course, yes, for space debris. Another thing that is happening is that I'm director, I'm also director of uh, what we call Space Situation Awareness Arizona. It's an initiative where we work with uh, different 
uh, you know, players, mostly Air Force Research Laboratory, um, to to basically characterize the behavior of space objects, right? Um, which includes space debris, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the problem is tasking, right? Telescope tasking, which might fits the bill, right? For this autonomous system. But we're also interesting, we're developing the cyber infrastructure where uh, telescopes, uh, telescopic data, we're mostly now working with optical assets that we have, can be processed in real time and then you know, went to autonomous system like deep learning based system that can take light curves or astrometric data and give you information about what the object is doing. What is it? So we want to identify, um, characterize, that is classify and also understanding behavior, which is a complex problem, right? So we're working in this regard you know, to, to advance the state of the art. So there is kind of a tangent Mm -hmm. uh, between planetary defense, we're doing work, space situation awareness work, and also implication for space debris, potential traffic management, so, mm -hmm. so. Okay, and uh, how do you decide? Now you mentioned deep learning. Previously you said the Bayesian-based, uh, mm -hmm. uh, cognitive-based systems. Uh, how do you decide which one to yeah. use? Well, so, I think it depends on the problem, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, Maybe we'll talk later, but I'm, uh, I'm a very much big proponent of deep learning, deep reinforcement learning, also what we call now deep reinforcement meta-learning. Uh, so and those approaches are all data-driven, right? Uh, it can be also physics-informed, uh, but um, generally the idea is that you have a bunch of data, all data, and then you want to infer information from the data. Um, in the case of... So, so if you have enough data, you can train a system, right? autonomously perform a certain task, which could be exactly the, the follow-up mm -hmm. idea. However, in this case, um, we have a lot of knowledge from scientists, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't have, at this point, a lot of data to train on, okay? I mean, we do have, uh, we do have different uh, data from the Minor Planet Center, right? Uh, but it's, it, it will take, you know, in our in our opinion at this point, um, it will take quite a bit, you know, to create proper data sets mm -hmm. that can eventually inform. So we're working inform deep neural networks to do the job. It's not impossible. We took a little bit different approach simply because uh, we we leverage on the fact that we have an investigation team that's been working on this for a while, and then now and usually when you work with scientists. Mm -hmm planetary scientists or, you know, asteroid scientists uh, or neo-scientists, they usually would like to understand what is happening and why you get certain answer. And so that's important for the community, right? And in this specific problem, a, a cognitive system works better because also they're explanatory. So if I reach a conclusion, I can also provide the next, the system can also provide an explanation of why you reached that conclusion. Uh, deep learning systems do not do it. They work on the data and autonomously learn information from the data, but the knowledge is distributed across the uh, weights of the networks. Uh, they might be more, more powerful, but they might not fit the, they may have a, a disadvantage in a situation where scientists are currently interested in understanding exactly why I'm getting that answer. Again, um, 
there was a choice that was made based on the fact that our team has experience both in deep learning and uh, and uh, and uh, cognitive systems, right? I found that whenever you work with uh, planetary scientists and space mission exploration, or science, or uh, you know uh, anything like planetary defense, is in the uh, you know is is the central team. The science team plays a major role, and explanation plays a major role as well. Therefore, this system I think are better suited to interact uh, and and with the, so it's it's very much uh, a blending of domain experts in the realm of computer science or computer engineering and and uh, and the planetary science, which might fit very well for the case being. So uh, both cognitive-based systems and uh, meta learning are based on the same philosophy that since you don't have a lot of data, you want to use uh, uh, already the knowledge of the way which you learn from data to build something even more abstract. Right. Uh, is uh, the physics informed uh, method similar, if this is true? Well, so we have to make a, a clear marked distinction, and the distinction is the fact that even if you work, so first of all, what is meta-learning? So you mentioned uh, deep learning, uh, I mentioned deep learning, we also mentioned meta-learning, right, meta-deep learning. So meta-learning is a little bit of different concepts. Uh, meta-learning literally means learning to learn. So you want a system that not only learn the task that you want, but also learn how to learn other things. And usually those systems are trained on distributed uh, set of tasks, but from each task he learns he accumulate experience and then eventually you can adapt quickly to new mm -hmm. coming tasks. So as a, as, a, as a result, you have much less data needed to train these things, okay? That's the principle behind it. Nevertheless, it's still data-driven. Okay. And it's still unexplanatory, right? So, so the only thing is that the meta-learning learns uh, mimic a little bit the learning process in humans where you know, we don't need uh, tons of data and tons of iteration to learn something. We learn very quickly, and the reason is because we probably learn on many tasks and we take with us the experience that we learn on other things before, right? Uh, the cognitive system uh, needs less data simply because it incorporates knowledge, knowledge extracted from the domain scientists. So what it means, it means that basically I have to elicit knowledge, which eventually to the scientist tool we went through in pretty much interviewing, I'll call it interview, but it's been an open discussion with plant scientists that tell me how the process of inferring, you know, which one is best versus the other goes. And so it's an interactive process where you work with the scientists to elicit their knowledge and try to put it in a cognitive system that does the inference as the scientists do. And they never see data, these systems. I mean, when they're ready, they don't need to. When they're, when they're ready, no, it's another interesting thing, an interesting flavor. There are different flavors here because things, you know, to a certain degree, mm. at a certain point becomes hybrid, depends how you design this. At the beginning, no, you don't need data. But nevertheless, when we have a plan to do test and validation, so for example, build our own internal um, um, simulator tools where we can run uh, simulates observation of many asteroids, right? With known parameters, right? Mm -hmm. And given these known parameters, if you give it to a scientist, he will tell you, I think this is most likely 
to be better than the other or to be more important than the other or this is the probability that I think that's more likely to be you know dangerous than the other and we want to compare we do cross validation in the sense that the system will need to reach the same conclusion that the scientists do mm -hmm. right if not you have to tune internally some parameters mm -hmm. right some weights or some 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 inference parameters that play so that the two things are matched however if you have some data even limited in this case you don't need it you can also tune the system based on data that may be unlabeled by the scientists that's another possibility that we're also exploring in this case you can still train the system but the training happens to train in the sense that the, you train the parameters that are behind the inference systems as defined by the scientists. Okay. It's an hybrid approach. And will While it keep uh, the, the transparency of the system? It still keeps the transparency because nevertheless it gives an explanation if you tune it. Okay. Right? And, and, and then it's very interactive because you have to cross-validate with what happens with the, <coughs> with the answer that the systems do. Mm -hmm. Indeed, basically, one thing that we did is, you know, we made up some hundred objects, right? And somebody gave me the out of 100, oh, it's not 100, sorry, uh, we put something like 990 uh, random objects, right? A random neos with certain characteristics mm -hmm. and so on. And then, embedding this, scientists gave me 10 dangerous ones. And they told me, mm -hmm. this is what I think is the most dangerous. And then to see if the system picked them up out of it. It turns out they did, mm -hmm. right? Um, after some tuning, we had to do some tuning because the beginning, the explanation didn't seem to be um, consistent for a couple of those. Most of them was, a couple of those were not. And then we started looking at that, why is this system thinking that they're not important? So it turns out that the, eventually when you account for the fact that maybe the ground system was able to see it, right? Mm -hmm. It would give them lower priority versus others that instead were not seen by the ground, but seen by the spacecraft, because we waited on the way we gave the system to inference that usually it's better to give um, uh, highest priority to objects that cannot be seen by any ground assets, but they're only identified by the spacecraft. So, as you see, that's a kind of a process of validation. Uh, and then we had to tune it a few things. Uh, so it's, it's kind of an iterative process that goes on. Um, the other one is, completely data-driven, but for a deep learning to work, we'll need a lot of data. At this point, it doesn't seem to be the, uh, doesn't seem to be the best way to approach that. You know, as we say, we have time to develop this, so we're, we're in the testing phase. We are in the development phase now. So. Yeah. And I have in mind a really abstract question yeah. about this. So you said that we're going to track 90% of the NEO objects. Yeah. Do you think we have enough time to uh, avoid a dangerous collision, dangerous in the sense that it's going to kill. Well, it, de it depends. It depends again. How much effort? Do we well, no, it depends how far away is the object, right? If it's going to co collide or not, right? It depends what we discover. If you ask me, if do we have time to react? The answer is unfortunately, we don't on a six-month scale or even a year scale. We just simply don't have anything to, um, we don't have a proven architecture that we can deploy in a few months to go and do something to avoid the system, if the time of collision is less than a year. 
Okay. Because we can just give a little push to the asteroid. Well, it depends. <laughs> Again, it all depends yeah. what's the trajectory, uh -huh. right? Uh, there's been studied. There's uh, actually Iowa State, uh, the Asteroid Deflection Research Center led by Bongui, uh, did uh, quite a bit of uh, case for demonstrate technology that can be deployed potentially in less than a year to go and intercept an asteroids and do something with this. His proponent was about using the nuclear devices and he did quite a bit of studies on that, on the architecture, how you would do that. The first thing that he realized, actually they used, they work with the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, uh, and they use hydrocode to simulate explosion of material <laughs> and they found out explosion of nuclear devices on asteroids and see how you would disrupt this. And he found basically that if you put this on the surface, it's not going to work. You have some somehow to put a hole into this and, uh, and inside and basically explode this nuke from the inside. That's the most effective way. Of course, it all depends how far away mm -hmm. you have. You have to have some time depending what is the time of time to impact, to time to predict the impact. But so, whether it was not his architecture was not like oh, go on the asteroids like Armageddon styles, drill and put it there. No, his architecture was mo mostly hit it right, hit it, um, and uh, and uh, uh, as you hit, you explode the, the you explode the, the device. Uh, however, there's a lot of challenges there. First challenge is that the velocity, impact velocity, was the order of 10 kilometers per second. You're talking about that's how how far how fast you go in a typical intercept. They did it's a simulation, for example, for the apophysis case. Mm -hmm. So if you fly 10, <laughs> 10 kilometers per second, the first challenge that you have is GNC, especially the navigation part, because then you if you have something a diameter of the order 150 meters, it's extremely challenge, you know, to have a system that can acquire a spacecraft that is a second before impact, you are 10 kilometers mm -hmm. away. That's extremely challenging, right? Uh, so the first thing is to navigate in a way that you basically correct it, right? So that you are guaranteed that the, the interception and mm -hmm. 140, 150 meters, not that much in terms of <laughs> size for intercept. That's the first challenge, but they developed some technology to demonstrate that what can be done with in a missile-like system, um, you know, using thermal uh, infrared, you know, detection and so on. Uh, the second challenge is the fact that if you have a, a nuclear device um, for detonation and you hit it at uh, at uh, ten kilometers per second, the just just the, the the device won't work. They can sustain impacts of the order of three hundred meters per second at the most. Okay. So what do you do? So what what, what does it? So the, the bomb let's say won't explode. Okay. If you're damaging the bomb basically, you when destroy the bomb without destroying the bomb. Yes. Yeah. So you want okay. you will have an impact and some explosion, but you're not gonna have. Uh, it's not the same that putting a device and exploding. Okay. okay? So, so you're you damaging. Right before. Yes, okay, so, yeah, but the problem is, the study that they did is that if you explode right before, what happens is that it's just not effective. It's, I mean, there is some effectiveness, but you won't, depending on the size, it won't, it won't be able to break it to a point that 
if you are far away, the fragments will disappear, right? Because what is happening is that if you explode it completely from the inside or some level of inside, you're going to explode and generate a cloud, and this cloud eventually will disperse. The central mass will continue, but you know, and if you're far away, you'll avoid the Earth continuing. So he had proposed an architecture where you have a, a <coughs> he had two architecture. So this is again, keep in mind that I'm reporting works; it's not mine. So I'm just I'm just going by memory, but basically they had an architecture where they had two spacecraft, one after another, and there were two options. The first one hit the the surface, create this hole inside. The other comes right after. You have to be precise to hit the same hole, and then time to detonation right before the impacts to explode. The second one architecture was the same same, but the the two spacecraft were connected through a long truss right, system where basically the first impacts, oh. then it crashes, and then as you go, you, you tune it. Yet, it's a challenging problem because you're talking about high speed and extremely, extremely precise timing. So NASA funded uh, one of these uh, phase two NEAX programs, about a million dollars to do the study. They went through the whole, um, I would say, concept study architecture uh, but then again there's no program currently that can fund the tech demo for these kind of things what it means as a result if something hits us of that size we're pretty much unprepared in terms of going and deflect the asteroids um, so that's on that time scale okay. Okay. if it's a 20 and part of the problem was the fact that you know um, plant of defense for now at least from the uh, uh, from the NASA perspective is more survey and the idea is that if we know if we map out the time of impacts and we find out that the time of impacts is 20 years we have 20 years to prepare and maybe it's not going to happen because you have some probability that this will happen anyway you know because you don't have the accurate the idea to the ability to predict all possible uh, the, the, the exact trajectory is in 20 years time scale you don't have 10% of the existing I mean yeah. Right. So what happens is that there was in the community, the planet defense community, there was a prevalence of survey methods versus active, active uh, intercept or active um, removal of the of the track, because the idea was that the bigger one, let's say larger than one kilometer, were all mapped out and they were ruled out for for intercept or the intercept, the probability of intercept low probability of in, uh, high probability of intercept would happen in 20 years 30 years 100 years and the idea is that at the time you, you can do something later on if this really happens um, i remember a while ago was people were talk, working on the tractor idea after a tractor idea where you would go there and just basically use the small gravitational pull mm -hmm. you know to slowly you know, divert it, you know, in a very, you, the delta V would be very minimal, but on a longer scale, we'll do it. Uh, so people have been proposed different solutions, but there's no actual program that can show that this technology, we know how to do it. I mean, we know in pa papers how to do it, but then it's different than say, I want to do a tech demo to go there and intercept, deflect as well. Deflection could be an effective way, but I'm talking about without any uh, kinetic impactors, not, mm -hmm. not nuclear device-based impactors. could be effective, but you have to do way in advance and you have to characterize 
how, how you know how much you can do with that right uh, so anyway so bottom line is that we cannot respond at this point on a on a on a one year let's say time scale for an impact um, people say oh yeah but lunch new came lunch stamp but they found that for the problem that we discussed that it's not going to be affected mm -hmm. so anyway so and do you think there's something we can do on ground let's say we discover t tomorrow that in six months uh 100 meter asteroid is gonna impact you're talking about let's say 200 meter asteroid mm -hmm. I, I don't think we can do anything i, I really i mean this on the web sorry um I no. I what do you, what do we do? That's a problem again. We move everyone. Yeah, of course. The best that you can do is try to predict where, where and estimate the impact, um, casualty, the impact, the damage, potentially. But you know, it's always uncertain because it's like um, you know, it's always last minute type of thing. So, I mean, I'm not trying to be alarmistic here, but reality is that. These events, anyway, they're not that they're not that common. That can happen, <coughs> but my opinion, you know, people might have different opinions. I don't think we have any direct defense for something on a short scale. I mean, again, as I mentioned, you know, some people say, "Oh, just launch a bunch of nuclear devices, mm -hmm. nuclear." It's just not gonna. It's just not effective. That being studied, that just simply not gonna. You're not gonna be able to uh, disrupt it. You may. Break it a little bit, but it's not gonna. You're not gonna. The only way you, to do it is from the inside, blow them up, and you know. And because and we can do, uh, we can learn something from the head mission, right? About this. Yeah, of course, of course. The more we do, the more we learn. Uh, but again, as I said, we don't have a proven. Proven means a TRL nine technology release mm -hmm. line that already flew there. We know confidently that we're gonna be affected. Because we never did anything like this, so I'm pretty sure that we're going to try to do something on a short term scale. But if you ask me, do we have a proven way? The answer is not. Today, no. To conclude, can we talk a bit about uh, your uh, working uh, working as a researcher about uh, this? Uh, the, uh, so many different topics now to handle uh, academic community revolving around you. Well, um, yeah, I have a relatively good sized group, right? I could see you have like four journal papers just for 2020. Yes, yes. Well, it's just February, so... Well, there are a couple of more that have already been accepted, but okay. they haven't... Well, again, uh, first thing that is important I want to mention that my lab is called Space System Engineering Lab. I have about almost 10 graduate students, PhD students. And uh, the key part is that um, when you get to position like mine, uh, actually one of the frustration of my work, believe it or not, is that you have less and less time to really actively put your hands, for example, on a computer, okay. you know, uh, on a computer and do yourself, you know, some of the coding. I still, I'm still doing it. I'm still hands-on, and the reason is because I do quite a bit of work on deep learning, on uh, cognitive systems, on um, application to GNC, and especially for deep learning, there is a new way of methods that borrowed from the computer science community, and they are running time. And if you don't know how it works, right, 
clearly. If you mm. don't have your hands on, it's really hard to 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 teach and advise students. So, I'm still spending, I would say, two three hours, two hours again a day to, to just to do Python based codes and an application of the deep learning directly myself. But the uh, the good part is that I have a very motivated team of students, which involves you know it's a mixture of you know, international and American. Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, four uh, PhD students that came from there, uh, some from Politecnico Milan, other from the University of Bologna, came there to do the master thesis, you know, uh, and then they decided to stay for the PhD, invited them to stay for the PhD. Um, then I have other US-based uh, system because some of these technicals will work for defense, you know, and there are programs where only you need only U.S. citizens for national defense to work on that. Uh, so they're excellent group and they just help me. You know, they follow my directions and uh, you know they many times I give them a lot of give them a lot of inputs, but they also come up with their own things. And uh, that's I think it's, it's the most important thing because at the end of the day we can't, as a single researcher, you're always limited to what you can do. Uh, so the most one of the most important thing is having a very good motivated research uh, group, especially PhD students or, or postdocs, and they can support you know your vision. That's the first mm -hmm. thing. Second thing is that to get large number of graduate students, you have to have quite a bit of funding. In the United States, graduate students cost quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about seventy k a year including overhead and everything to support one graduate students full-time. So that's the kind of things that uh, then of course you have, to have the ability to bring the money into, right? But to bring a substantial amount of money, it's, it's, it's uh, extremely hard if you work as a single principal investigator. If you are by yourself, you can write proposals, of course, to different agencies, including uh, Air Force, there is DARPA, the Defense Agency, there is NSF, there is also NASA, and so on. But as a single investigator, you can bring a limited amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the key part is to collaborate with people. So what you have to do is to find a very good number of trusted collaborators, both in academia and possibly in industry, if you can, where you establish very functional working relationships. Okay, because another important key part to be productive is that you get along with people. I wouldn't say get along, but you get things done and you don't waste your energy in a lot of personal per, personal conflicts or issues that can arise, in, especially in academic environments where there's a lot of egos going around, right? So uh, it seems to, be, seems to be kind of, a, you know, originally an overlooked concept, but more and more even in NASA mission, I've seen people uh, be oriented to having teams that are not necessarily, they do not need to be the best per se, but they need to work uh, organically and they not, need not to be disruptive, otherwise life is miserable for everybody. And so that's a key part, and it will hamper your productivity. Okay, so it's a, it's an extreme. So it's a combination of things. It's a, it's a, it becomes a, it's a combination of having, at the end of the day, group a right group of students under your laboratory if you work in a, in a university, having a network of of, uh, of peers where you can uh, you can work together with, and they 
they trust your vision, they share your vision, right? They're willing to help and they're willing to be team players, you know, with the idea that if you work together, you can do much more, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and um, and then, of course, you have to have also another important thing that unfortunately I never teach in graduate school. But, uh, at least maybe, maybe things are changing, but, you know, this is something that, you know, when you go when you go and do a PhD, usually you focus on your research and you become the, the expert probably in the world in that part of dissertation that you do. But the real life is that at the end of the day, when you get out, you have to write proposals, you have to understand the politics, you have to understand actually the landscape, the funding mm-hmm. that are done so that you can, uh, you don't go after research that is maybe of interest to you per se, but it might not be something that is fundable, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so you have to have some management, you know, and political, so to speak, capabilities that unfortunately is not taught as part of the PhD students. Even the simple things of how do you write proposals is uh, is important. Having, for example, an advisor of helping that can get you into the mindset of how you write a proposal for a successful grant, you know, is extremely, so it's extremely important. Is this something you're, you're teaching your students? Yes, actually the way to do it is because I need help too, if you want to write more proposals, right? Um, it's it's one of those things that's a little tricky because usually what you can do, you can ask them to write something. And of course, if they don't have experience, it just won't work. So what happens is that you can take that material, it's a good some good basis, and then you have to phrase it in a way. But then eventually, as you go, if they stay with you sometimes, usually through their life, maybe the first one are not that great, but then they, you start, they start understanding how you structure things, how you think about it. And they got better and better and better. And that's what happened with me, with my advisor, when I was doing my PhD. I had no clue at the time, actually. I didn't even know you had to write proposals, to be honest. I mean, I was, you know, whatever. I was 25, 26. It was like, I thought, you know, write papers. What were these proposals at the time, right? And it was interesting because he said, you know, write a proposal for, you know, help me to do ABC. I had no clue about how to do it, but it just pushed me in the to do it and then eventually quickly realize that that's the way to, to go about it. That's the way you need to do it. It's, it's a vital uh, tool, right? Because at the end, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to just, I wouldn't say survive, but strive, you know, not try, strive, thrive in the, in the environment to be successful. You have to know how to do this. You have to know how to collaborate with people to write proposals, you have to share ideas. It's a combination of skills that go beyond just a simple write a paper because I did this research and I found this result. So this will affect. So it's a, anyway, I hope I gave an idea about how more complex is nowadays doing research, you know, that with respect at least what I was thinking naively 20, 25, 20, 25 years ago about what was research about. Yeah, for sure. It's helpful for me at least to yeah. know about these things. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. My pleasure. Thank you.